Dateline, Monday, September 30th, 1929, Kansas City Star, Kansas City, Missouri. Police Statement of Mrs. Mamie Hoffman. Before I knew what was happening, I heard the shot, and I jumped out the door and ran upstairs. While I was running up the stairs, I heard a second shot. Mr. Bill Reed lives down the stairs from us, and I knocked on his door, and the Reeds were entertaining guests. Mr. Reed opened the door, and then he went downstairs with me. When we got into the Bennett's apartment, Mr. Bennett was lying on the floor, and Mrs. Bennett was in the living room. I saw Mr. Reed pick up the gun, but I do not know where it had been. Mrs. Bennett then sat down beside Mr. Bennett, and sitting there on the floor, she became hysterical. Mr. Reed then said, Call the doctor. He arrived in just a little while, and just as the doctor began his examination and had announced Mr. Bennett dead, the police officers and a reporter from the Star came in. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA, and no, I still do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, this episode is part two of Case 19 of Prison City Murders. If you haven't listened to part one, you missed a really good episode. So you should go back and listen to part one before you listen to this episode. But in case you don't want to, here's a recap. In 1929, 36-year-old Jack Bennett is shot and killed in his apartment in Kansas City, Missouri, after a game of bridge with his wife Myrtle and neighbor couple Mamie and Charles Hoffman. 
It's now 1931, and Myrtle Bennett is on trial for first-degree murder. There, you're caught up. There's an excellent book on this case called The Devil's Tickets by Gary M. Pomerantz. It is especially riveting when it gets to the part about the trial. The Devil's Ticket is available on Amazon.com. The link is in the show notes. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Myrtle's trial begins in February 1931 at the Jackson County Courthouse in Kansas City. The prosecutor is tough and experienced. His name is Jim Page. The judge is Ralph Latshaw. The real star of the trial, besides Myrtle, is former U.S. Senator from Missouri Jim Reed, Myrtle's defense attorney. Senator Reed is no relation, as far as I know, to the Mr. Reed, who's the Bennett's neighbor, the guy Mamie Hoffman ran to when she heard the shots. He's R-E-I-D, and the defense attorney is R-E-E-D. As usual, politics can't be ignored in this trial. I talked about this quite a bit in the Kansas City Massacre case. The entire political and administrative apparatus of Kansas City, Missouri, including the police force, is controlled by political boss Tom Pendergast. Organized crime led by mob boss Johnny Lazio is separate but intertwined with the Pendergast machine. The two groups work well together to keep Kansas City corrupt and teeming with vice. In reality, Kansas City is a wide open town because of Pendergast and Lazio. So, even though all these lawyers and the judge are part of the justice system, they owe their careers to Tom Pendergast and the machine. But there's competition within the machine. They each have their own separate ambitions. Prosecutor Page wants to be a judge. He puts himself out there as a tough-on-crime prosecutor. In the past, he has criticized Judge Latshaw for being soft on criminals. Judge Latshaw, of course, thinks everything he does in the courtroom is above reproach. He's a judge, after all. And he is a longtime friend of defense attorney, former Senator Jim Reed. Reed's history is long and fascinating. Somebody could do a good history podcast on him. He's a huge figure in Missouri history. Three-term U.S. Senator, probably most famous for leading the charge against U.S. President Woodrow Wilson to keep America out of the League of Nations, as well as marrying two of his mistresses. At the time of Myrtle's trial, Reed still harbors presidential ambitions and is well known as a persuasive and somewhat vindictive speaker. With these three involved, Myrtle's trial is full of drama. Things start with jury selection. It's 1929 in Missouri, 
And women do have the right to vote, but they don't have the right to be on juries or to have women on their juries. At the time, serving on a jury is still a privilege reserved only for men. Missouri will let women on juries in 1945, but their service is optional. The way it works, men are automatically in the jury pool. Women have to opt in if they want to serve on juries. So in practice, women on juries are rare in Missouri. This isn't challenged until 1979, when the U.S. Supreme Court hears the case of Duran v. Missouri. In that case, a convicted murderer challenged his guilty verdict, saying that his jury didn't reflect a, cross, a fair cross-section of the community because there weren't enough women in the jury pool. Ruth Bader Ginsburg presented Duran's arguments. I have some mixed feelings about this case. In the end, I guess it's a feminist victory. Ginsburg argued that the law devalued the service of women on juries, certainly a feminist argument. But I wonder if the whole thing didn't really start out with defense attorneys thinking women would be more sympathetic to their clients. At any rate, Myrtle gets an all-male jury, and Reed puts Pendergast operatives to work investigating all the prospective jurors. In the end, they get a jury of nine married men and three bachelors, among them only one bridge player. The jury is sequestered from the get-go. Page announces he will not ask for the death penalty. He strategizes how to demonstrate to the jury that Myrtle deliberately murdered her husband. Reed plots his strategy to show that Myrtle was a devoted wife and daughter who only killed her husband after years of abuse, or maybe just by accident, or maybe it was self-defense. Page's biggest problem is how to handle the Hoffmans on the stand. There are already indications that their stories have changed, mainly in Myrtle's favor. However, Page has their original signed statements, so his plan is to use those statements, if he must, to prove his case of murder. What he wants to prove is this. Myrtle is so furious and humiliated that she stomps back to her mother's bedroom gets the gun, goes by Charles, who is just leaving the bathroom. Not really sure why, listeners. I'm, I mean, I'm guessing he just went to the bathroom because he had to go. They just live upstairs. You'd think he could wait, but I have my suspicions that alcohol might be involved here. Anyway, she sees John. He's packing to leave. He flees to the living room, trying to get to the front door after Myrtle has shot and missed at him. Myrtle follows him out through the bedroom and shoots him in the living room, where Myrtle shoots him twice in the back, 
killing him. Page says to the jury, quote, Myrtle Bennett chased her husband down and shot him in the back. It was felonious, malicious, willful, and premeditated murder with malice aforethought, unquote. Reed, for his part, mainly plays on the jury's heartstrings. There's a good exchange in The Devil's Tickets after Reed has gone on and on about poor Myrtle's humble beginnings and her sainted mother. And Page loses his patience with Reed's performance. I object, Page shouted. Whether she was destitute has nothing to do with this case. Reed told the jury he only wanted to show his client's life history. Page exploded. I don't want him standing there trembling tears and eyes talking about the defendant being destitute. Read, maybe you would tremble too if the fact of this woman's life were known. Page, I'll tremble because this defendant shot her husband in the back. Myrtle plays her part well, sobbing at the right moments and daintily dabbing her tear-filled eyes and acting faint whenever it's called for. The story Reed presents to the jury is quite different, of course. Jack is an abusive, unfaithful husband, has been for years. Myrtle is his long-suffering, devoted, obedient wife. The night of the shooting, while Jack is playing out the fatal hand, Myrtle is in the kitchen, setting out things for Jack's early breakfast before he leaves on his business trip to St. Joe. After the fight, which is really started by Jack, who finishes it by slapping Myrtle hard five or six times and threatening to leave her. In this story, Jack asks Myrtle to go get his gun, crying, Mrs. Bennett obeyed, as she was in the habit of doing when her husband asked her. As she passes the master bathroom, Charles Hoffman comes out and startles her. She stumbles, and the gun accidentally goes off. Twice, by the way, listeners. Then Jack comes toward her and struggles with her for the gun. She's shocked and terrified and frightened. They end up in the living room, somehow, and the gun accidentally goes off again, twice again. Prosecutor Page does have some trouble with the testimony of Charles Hoffman. Page uses Hoffman's original statement to guide Hoffman through what he wants him to say. But Hoffman keeps going off script. Page is exasperated by this. The defense objects, saying the prosecutor is trying to impeach his own witness. The judge sends the jury out of the room. Page argues the jury has a right to hear how Hoffman's testimony differs significantly from his sworn statement given right after the shooting, and I have to agree with him on that. Reed and Hoffman whine about 
How could he be expected to remember perfectly all the details from so long ago? Reed keeps yelling the prosecutors trying to intimidate his own witness. Finally, the judge makes his decision, which, obligatory, not a legal expert, but this kind of thing really frustrates me about trials, which I think should be about getting to the truth, but they're not. That's not what happens in almost every case. So see what you think, listeners. Judge Latshaw, quote, Sometimes the only way a person can see the light, he's talking about Prosecutor Page, is by falling in the darkness. I am going to allow you to impeach the witness against my judgment. He's the judge. And with the firm conviction that you are putting in this record, in case of a conviction of this woman, an absolutely fatal error, unquote. So, the judge is purposely allowing the prosecutor to do something that the judge is positive will give the defense grounds for appeal. And, and he lets it be right there in the court transcript. That just seems crazy to me, but I'm not a judge and not a lawyer. And for my own sanity, that's probably a good thing. Okay, the jury comes back in and the prosecutor gets to make most of the points he wants to make during Hoffman's testimony. He does present other witnesses there is a maid who lives in the basement of the Ward Parkway building. The shots wake her up the night of the murder, and she gives good testimony about how she hears two shots and a long pause, and then two more shots. Bill Reed, the upstairs neighbor, testifies about the aftermath of the shooting. He secures the gun, Myrtle's hysterical, etc. The police officers and the coroner present their evidence, bullet holes in the bathroom door, and Jack Bennett, bullet holes in him, in his back, two of them, and he's in the living room trying to get out the front door. Then the prosecution rests, deciding not to call Myrtle's mother, Alice Adkins, or Mamie Hoffman. This is a strategic move by the prosecutor in light of how much trouble he got into with Charles Hoffman's testimony. Prosecutor Page decides to wait until the defense calls them and then make his points on cross-examination. The defense puts on a real tearjerker, very dramatic, very emotional, really a purely emotional defense, not a logical one. Truth be told, I don't think there is a logical defense. So they go with lots of character witnesses for Myrtle, how wonderful she is, how terrible Jack was, how badly he treated her. As far as any kind of explanation of the crime, they throw in everything you can think of, accidental shooting, temporary insanity, 
even self-defense. The prosecutor tenaciously cross-examines all these people. Like the defense, he objects a lot, but unlike the defense, the prosecution doesn't have much success with the judge. Reading about the trial, you get the sense that Page is trying to use logic and legal minutiae against Reed's emotional juggernaut, and emotions are winning, and the judge is really on the defense's side. Mamie Hoffman's testimony, it's a lot of, I just can't remember for sure. It calls to mind how often Hillary Clinton says, I don't recall when she has to testify about things, and it's a very good strategy. The prosecutor ultimately just gives up on Mamie. This isn't lost on Myrtle's mother, Alice, and she basically does the same thing when Paige cross-examines her. Listeners, this is worth thinking about if you ever have to testify in court, and you don't really want to tell the whole truth. But you don't want to lie either. Just keep saying, I just can't say. Possibly, I'm not certain. And that may have happened, but perhaps not. I can't remember. Like Mamie and Alice did. As our estimable Judge Latshaw puts it, you can't impeach memory. Anybody who watches true crime or listens to true crime podcasts knows that defendants rarely take the stand in murder trials. In this case, though, the defense calls Myrtle to testify. And why not? Things are going very well for them with this emotional defense. The prosecutor is happy about this. He is just sure he can win his case by cross-examining her. Myrtle's time on the stand is brief, even including the cross-examination. It's over in less than an hour. Reed does not ask Myrtle detailed questions, and she doesn't give any straight answers. That's on purpose. The strategy is to give the prosecutor nothing he can pounce on during cross-examination. Myrtle explains the first shots like this, quote, Charles says, My God, Myrtle, what are you going to do? And reached for me, or in some way, I don't know just how it happened. I couldn't tell you, but there was a chair, a large chair, one of the dining room chairs sitting there. It hit my arm in some way, or I stumbled over it, or in some way, I don't know how it happened, and the gun discharged, unquote. Then she bursts into tears right on cue. As we've seen, it's very hard to cross-examine. I don't know about how her husband ends up dead in some way. Quote, Mr. Bennett was coming towards me, and when he got right to me, right near the door leading from the living room into the bedroom, he caught hold of me and grabbed hold of me, and then he caught hold of my arms and twisted them, and in some way in the scuffle, I don't know how, 
the gun discharged. I don't know how it happened. I don't know in what position or just how it happened. But that is how it happened. When he grabbed hold of me, I said, Oh, Jack, be careful. Be careful of the gun, because it had just discharged. And I was frightened to death when he came towards me. I didn't know what he was going to do. I was just frightened when he took hold of me, and that's all I know. I was simply frightened to death, unquote. Listeners, if I'd been in the courtroom, my eyes would have rolled up into my head and gotten stuck. Let's not forget Jack is the one who's dead. I'm thinking he's the one who was frightened the most that night. Paige really makes an effort on cross-examination, but every time he tries to pin Myrtle down on something specific, the defense objects on the grounds that he can only question Myrtle about things Reed originally asked her, and the judge sustains everything the defense objects to. Paige finally throws in the towel, quote, under the ruling of the court, I can't ask any more questions of this witness, unquote. And he disgustedly sits down in his chair at the prosecution table. Listeners, I think I've seen this in courtroom dramas before. There's some really important issue. For some legal reason, the prosecution can't bring it up when they present their case. But then the murderer decides to testify and slips up and makes some mention of it. And that allows the prosecution to just pounce when they cross-examine the defendant. I think that's what Prosecutor Page was hoping would happen. And it just doesn't happen here at all. In his rebuttal, the prosecutor is allowed to show the jury how some of the witnesses' testimony differed from their original sworn statements. As far as he's concerned, that that is a plus. I don't know. I wonder if the jurors aren't just worn down by now. They've been sequestered for days. That's boring and it's tiring. When the jury is in the courtroom, they're supposed to be fully concentrating on everything that's going on, and that's really hard to do for long periods of time. Then Mr. Page plays one final card, the ace up his sleeve, if you will. He calls a Mr. Bird Rice to the stand. Who is Bird Rice? Jack's nephew. Does he have something important to say about the case? Yes, he does. However, the jury will not hear it before they deliver their verdict. So normally in a trial, both sides present their cases. The prosecution shows the jury why they think the defendant's guilty. 
the defense doesn't have to present a case that their client is innocent. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. So they can just say the prosecution didn't present enough evidence to truly show the defendant is guilty. But I think most of the time they put on some kind of case to show the prosecution is wrong. Then each side gets to respond to the case that the other side presented. During this phase of the trial, it's not usual for them to be allowed to bring up new things, things that weren't presented in the original case. However, it can be legally okay at a trial for the prosecution to call a new witness, like Bird Rice, during the rebuttal phase of a trial, if the witness has something to say that refutes what a witness called by the defense testified to while the defense was presenting their case. I've seen this on shows like Law & Order. The DA calls a surprise witness. The defense objects that they should have been told about the witness and so forth and so on. This is that kind of situation. Myrtle testified that she didn't know how the shooting happened. The prosecutor contends that she does know because she told Bird Rice what happened, and he can testify about that. Reed says that the prosecution should have made Rice part of their original case. So they argue and argue. Then the defense attorney asked the most important question. When did the prosecution know about this witness, Mr. Bird Rice? That is very important. The rules of a trial are purposely set in favor of the defense, and that's a good thing. And one of the rules is that the prosecution must reveal all their witnesses to the defense in plenty of time so that they can prepare their defense against whatever that witness has to say. There are exceptions, but the prosecution must show that there was absolutely no way for them to have known about the witness and whatever information they might testify to. For example, the witness just woke up from a coma. That would be maybe a good exception. Nothing clear-cut like that happened in this case. As it turns out, Bird Rice had told his story to the prosecution long before the trial. In the intro to this episode, I read Mamie Hoffman's statement taken by an assistant prosecutor right after the shooting. That assistant prosecutor George Charno was at the scene of the crime and took statements from the witnesses at the time. His name is in the first article in the Kansas City Star about the shooting. Rice says that about a month after the shooting, he came to visit Myrtle and she told him about the murder and even showed him 
what happened. He immediately called the prosecutor's office and made a statement to Mr. Charno about it. Now, as it turns out, Charno resigned as a prosecutor a few weeks before the trial. Page insists that he knew nothing about this until Bird's mother, who was a witness for the prosecution, just happened to mention that Bird had talked with Myrtle when they were visiting Kansas City. Only then did Page find out about what Bird had to say. Okay, listeners. So, an assistant prosecutor who was the initial investigating prosecutor resigns not long before this huge trial. And nobody asks him about all the witness statements he took. Nobody goes through his files and finds the Bird Rice statement. Really? Really? How does that happen? And even if it does, how does the prosecutor think this will fly with a judge? Well, it doesn't fly. Judge Latshaw, quote, It is one of the safeguards. The law has seen fit to throw around a defendant to protect him. But to allow the state 16 months after it had knowledge of the witness and had not endorsed the witness's name on the information to use that witness is to use the court as a trap, to take away from the defendant the constitutional right which she has, unquote. In my opinion, he's absolutely right this time. Whatever happened, I guess, if you want to think conspiracy, you could. Charno is really on the side of the defense and didn't let anybody know about the statement. I don't know. You can go all kinds of places with it. I prefer probably to think it's just incompetence. The prosecution just didn't do their homework like they should have. Anyway, the handwriting's on the wall for the prosecution. Both sides give it their all in closing statements. The jury considers the case overnight and then finds the defendant not guilty. The defense is delighted. The prosecution sulks, but they're done. Talking to reporters later, jury members say that it wasn't that they thought she was innocent, but that the prosecution didn't prove her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So, what do I think happened? Listeners, I was really trying to play it cool and not show my hand, but that's hard for me. And I'm sure you could tell. I thought Myrtle was guilty from the get-go. I guess we can still wildly speculate for a minute, though. Could it have been a tragic accident? Well, let's see. Myrtle says that 
The only reason she had the gun at all was that Jack asked her to fetch it. Keep in mind, nobody else says that. But, okay, a furious husband asks his equally furious wife that he's just slapped to go get his gun. Well, let's accept that for now. The Colt 32 pistol was designed specifically to prevent accidental discharges. So we have to accept that the safety must have been off and before Myrtle went and got the gun. Because if she took the safety off, then that's premeditation. Okay, so the safety was left off. Well, that's a very dangerous thing, but people do it. Why is there a gun in the apartment in the first place? I suppose Jack might have it to carry when he's on the road. He probably carries a lot of cash with him when he travels. But then why is the gun kept in Alice's room and not with Jack's stuff? That actually sounds more like the gun was for the women's protection when he was gone. Both Myrtle and her mother try to give the impression that they are frightened of the gun. They're just poor defenseless women who have no idea how to shoot a gun. Well, I don't believe that. They're Arkansas country girls. I think they probably know very well what to do with guns. But let's say that's not the case. Then why is Myrtle carrying it with her finger on the trigger? But okay, for whatever reason, her finger is hovering near the trigger for some reason. Let's say the first shot was accidental. Even thinking that could happen, it's just impossible to believe there would be another accidental shot in the same direction as the other one. These two accidental shots just happen to be in the door frame and the door of the master bathroom where Jack just happens to be standing. That's really, really hard to believe. But let's buy that for now. So, a natural reaction after a gun goes off is to drop the gun. And if you're Myrtle, back away from the husband you just almost accidentally shot. That's not what Myrtle did, even by her own account. She somehow holds on to the gun and ends up struggling with Jack and somehow ends up going through the bathroom, through the bedroom, and into the living room. And Jack gets shot accidentally in the back twice. There's just no way to get your mind around that. The only place to go with that is the incident 
possibly started out as an accident and turned into self-defense. Self-defense. Let me wildly speculate a minute. It's hard, but I can do it. Jack is so enraged by the first two shots that he charges at his wife to try to grab the gun and shoot her. Maybe that's really stupid of him, but I guess it could happen. Although he's calm enough after the fight to put the bridge table away, put the cards away, go into his room and start packing. So somehow just the sight of his wife with a gun enrages him, I guess. It makes him dumb enough to charge at a woman holding a loaded gun. The defense actually tries to show in court how that could happen. But even with all kinds of contortions, it just can't be done. Jack is shot in the upper back with the bullet exiting at his throat. He starts to fall, and the second shot goes through his armpit, coming out at his waist, So a downward trajectory. That doesn't happen in a struggle. Listeners, I would have thought that a ballistics expert, there are those people like that in in that day and age, that a ballistics expert could figure out from the bullet holes in Jack's clothes whether he was shot close up or from some feet away somehow. I don't know. I'm not a ballistics expert. And there are experts at the trial, but their testimony just didn't seem to be very definitive one way or the other. For me, just the way he shot, the way the bullets are in his body, leads me to believe it wasn't shots that went off in a struggle, and it wasn't Mrs. Bennett defending herself. So all that's left is temporary insanity. That's not an unreasonable theory of this crime. It's never mentioned specifically, but I definitely think alcohol is involved. It's still prohibition, so alcohol would be technically illegal. But in reality, alcohol would almost always be part of golf and bridge games and and pretty much any social evening, especially in this social class in 1929, Kansas City. So, Myrtle killed her husband in a fit of rage. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Is that legal insanity? We've talked about that can of worms before. Just personally, not as a legal expert, I don't think so. The crime is too prolonged. Myrtle goes to get the gun to shoot her husband. She gets it, hunts him down, and shoots at him. Then chases him when she misses and shoots him fatally. I read up a little on the Colt revolver. It's a very popular gun. The one criticism is that the sights aren't very good on it. So I think it's perfectly reasonable she could miss, even at that close range. He 
Caesar with the gun reacts and moves before she gets the gun up to shoot again at him. At that point, she's got time to cool off. Nobody's dead. She could drop the gun, get hysterical, do whatever, but she doesn't. She goes through the bathroom, through the bedroom, gun in hand. She chases her husband down and shoots him in the back twice. That's murder, murder, murder not just temporary insanity. No doubt in my mind. If there's any doubt in your mind, let's hear what Bird Rice would have told the court had he been allowed to testify. This is what he told reporters. Six week, weeks after the killing of his Uncle Jack, Rice said he visited his Aunt Myrtle she told him essentially what she had told his mother, Annie Rice. Quote, after the trial, I will tell you why I shot Jack, and then you won't feel so prejudiced against me. Nobody but my God and I know why I killed him, unquote. But then Myrtle went a step further. She walked Bird Rice through the apartment and narrated the chase as she remembered it. In the den, she pointed to the spot where Charles Hoffman had stood near the bathroom when she appeared with the pistol. Of Hoffman, Myrtle told her nephew, he could have stopped me. She demonstrated how she had chased Jack with a pistol in her hand. She told Rice she fired four times, the first two from the den, just as Jack closed the bathroom door as a shield. She said she chased him through their bedroom and into the living room where she fired twice more, the last bullet striking him in the back as he reached for the front door. That, listeners in my opinion, is exactly what happened. After the verdict, Myrtle pretty much falls off the radar. She doesn't sell her story to the tabloids or write a book or anything. She just leaves town, and only a few close friends and relatives know where she is. I found her posting on findagrave.com. She lives a long life. She doesn't die until 1992 when she's 96 years old. Her name is still Bennett, so I assume she never remarried. Her grave is right beside her mother's in Oklahoma. I also found a passenger arrival slip into New York City from an airline in 1962. The flight number is AF700. I think that's Air France. Her permanent address is listed as Southeast 76th Street, New York City. That is where a famous hotel, the Carlisle, is located just off Fifth Avenue near Central Park. It's a very famous hotel 
President Kennedy used to keep a secret, uh, well, I don't know how secret it was, hideaway there. Marilyn Monroe would sneak in and out sometimes. So it's a, a place for celebrities and very wealthy people. It's a very prestigious place. So I wasn't sure exactly what she was doing there, but I thought, well, maybe she, you know, had plenty of money and somehow was able to find a nice place to live. Then I was stuck. I couldn't find much else. Luckily, Gary Pomerantz, journal, historian, and author, is much more resourceful than I am. When I got his book, I found out that he had tracked down a lot about Myrtle's later life. It turns out she had a long career as the executive housekeeper at the Carlisle, living rent-free at the hotel and overseeing the needs of its many famous and wealthy guests, including movie stars and presidents. She was very well thought of there. She often played bridge with her small group of friends. They, for the most part, had no idea of her past. She was very private about that. She worked there for many years, eventually retiring to Miami, Florida. Over the years, she kept in touch with a, flu a few close friends and relatives who respected her privacy. She left a pretty large estate, mainly to John Bennett's relatives. I'm not quite sure why, but Myrtle's story bothers me a little. She seems to have lived a decent, productive life. She had the support of her family and friends. In The Devil's Ticket, people talk fondly of her. I guess maybe I do know why. I'm, I'm bothered by her a little bit. I think she was really sorry about what happened. Still, like in many cases, the murderer is really, really sorry, but it's tinged with a lot of sorry for themselves and self-justification. I will admit, I'm disappointed when I don't see any kind of repentance and penance like go work in the slums of Calcutta taking care of orphans or you're a murderer go nurse lepers in Africa that shows you're sorry so as far as Myrtle goes I don't hate her or anything like that but I don't think I would have liked her very much of course, in this case, I'm not crazy about the victim either. He didn't deserve to be murdered, but I think he was what they would have called a cad back in the day, a cheater. He's abusive. But you never know. He could have changed. Things could have changed in his life. And he never got that chance. Because
because Myrtle became too angry and couldn't control herself. John Gilbert Bennett's grave is posted on Find a Grave, too. He was buried at his boyhood home in Illinois. His life ended in 1929 when he was only 36 years old. Listeners, about the game of bridge, I mentioned how much I like to play it. Unfortunately, it's not a stretch to say that bridge players are a dying breed. Not that we're getting murdered a lot or anything like that. We're just old. Most players are retired people. Billionaires Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are avid bridge players. But they're old. They do try to support the game, though. There's a big bridge tournament in Omaha, Nebraska every year. That's Warren Buffett's home. And he helps sponsor it. Gates and Buffett usually play in that tournament. I went up to Omaha a few years ago and got to play just a couple of tables away from them. It was kind of exciting. Of course, everybody tries to be very casual about them and give them their space. Plus, they have very present security teams. The rumor is that all their bodyguards are required to be good bridge players. Anyway, let me give a little pitch for the game. We really could use a lot more players, especially younger players. I put the link for the American Contract Bridge League, ACBL, in the show notes. Oh, and the links for my sources about the podcast in the show notes. The link for ACBL is just acbl.org. There are all kinds of bridge resources on there and all over the web. It does take a little effort to learn to play bridge, but it's a fascinating game and fun that hooks many, many people. It's a a fun time, not just the card-playing part, but the social part of the game. Most of the time, we're not arguing and shooting people. We're just chatting, and it's fun. If you're interested, lots of bridge players would love to help you get hooked on the game. Oh, and there are plenty of ways to get started online, too. A lot of people all over the world play online. The free site I like the best is www.bridgebase.com. B-R-I-D-G-E-B-A-S-E.com. There's a free app for it too. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. And again, thank you, Gator Gal. And I looked up my other five-star reviewer, Looney123. For your five-star reviews, you made my day. You made my week, let's be honest. And I know I said I welcome constructive criticism. Well, I liked those five-star reviews a lot. So... I don't think I want any constructive criticism 
in the reviews. I just want glowing reviews, five stars. My friends and family give me plenty of constructive criticism. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.